our second lesson, 2 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, beginning with the third verse. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrow yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. The word of the Lord. May we pray. For the blessing of your presence, you who are with us day to day, hour to hour, moment to moment. To you who never leave us nor forsakes us, who walks with us and tells us that you are our own. To you, O oh God, we lift our hearts and voices in proclamation that you are God and we are yours. While we are waiting, yielded and still, have thine own way with us, O oh God. Have thine own way. And we will honor you all the days of our lives. For we are not worthy. And yet, you have given us life. This is our prayer, O oh God. We pray. Amen.
yesterday, someone asked me, about my bio, my career trajectory. You're a young man. You've done all these things. And how have you done all these things? How did you put, pack all that in there? And then the question went to, from another. Which is more difficult, teaching, leading an institution, preaching? That's easy. There's nothing more difficult for me, Kevin, than preaching. Because I know how hard it is for us to always hear God. And then having heard to get God right. And I feel the gravitas of God every day of my existence. And I'm so very happy to have this honor to bring the message to you this morning. <laughs> to Pastor Kevin Long and the worshiping community of Independent Presbyterian Church, it's good to be here with you in person and, and those of you who are on webcast. It is good to be a part of this celebrated congregation on this morning. A special note of thanks to Lee and Jean Walthall. And I understand, Lee, that this is your sacred space, your sacred seat. <laughs> I cannot begin to tell you how much of a blessing this man has been to Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He serves on our trustee board, but he doesn't just serve, he serves with aplomb. And the grace that he and Jean and Kenan and their, Kenan, your children, Van and Helen, shared with us on last night after the particular gridiron debacle had ended was simply superb. I will always cherish it. We met, Anne and I, we met so many wonderful people last night. The house was packed. The air was warm. The food was delightful and it was just a, just a, a glad time. Lee and Jean were joined by Lant and Amanda Davis and I know He's up here? Okay. I can't see him, but I can imagine his celestial voice. <laughs> and Kevin and Rebecca were co-hosts of last night's 
wonderful gathering for Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. It was just delightful to be at Lee and Jean's home. In addition to Lee currently serving on our trustee board, Lant Davis was the chair of the board for anyone who did not know at the time that I was invited to come and serve as president. And so I will always hold a special place in my heart for this gentleman and for he and Amanda both. They, along with the trustees at that time, made my coming to LPTS possible. Anna James was on the board at that time. Anna, where, oh, there's Anna over there. And we just had and continue to have a stellar set of trustees. We also cherish our seminary, the long and illustrious relationship between independent and LPTS. We have had many luminaries traverse both entities, beginning with, of course, your founding pastor, Henry Edmonds. And there have been other pastors like Conrad Sharp and Bill Caro and Morgan Roberts and I, who was here as an interim. And I asked Kevin this morning when I heard the announcement about the Morgan project. I, I said, does that have something to do with Morgan Roberts? And, uh, it did not, but anytime you hear the word Morgan, you necessarily think that it must have something to do with him because he was such and continues to be such a delightful person. So many alums have come from this congregation to LPTS, serving in many different ministry venues and capacities. I want to take a moment to introduce Ann Monell for any of you who have not already seen her out and about. Ann is our Vice President for Philanthropy and Stewardship. Um, I talk, she brings in the bacon. And uh, we together have had a wonderful uh, engagement. We have been traveling uh, the country and we will continue to do so because we delight in the ethos and the future of Louisville Seminary. I am in my fifth year as president at the seminary. And for we who are gathered here this morning in the presence of God, as the people of God, for we who long for the living God and who hunger and thirst, let us now do the work our souls must have. Let us worship our profession as a people of faith, is to love God and neighbor. Our ceaseless struggle is how to become more faithful, how to be better human beings, how best to live and speak in truth and to do so in love. In the public square, 
we express another kind of fidelity to democratic freedoms in this great land. For many of us in the church and in society, visions of the beloved community, the expression of our better angels, the search for common ground, these are our heart's ambitions. Faith, hope, and love, freedom, justice, and equality are among our chief preferments. Life teaches us that these virtues are not easily won. The struggle for all of us to be our best selves is uneven. And I will say to you this morning that we will get there together as siblings. So help us God. Forty years ago, I was a PhD student at Duke, taking courses from the renowned historian John Hope Franklin. For any of you who may not know John Hope Franklin, John Hope Franklin was the first historian of the academy to serve as the president of all four of the leading historical societies in this country. A brilliant man. And it was from him that I first learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. The story of Tulsa, one of the most horrific instances of anti-black terrorism in this country, took place 101 years ago this year. The telling of this American story is not for the faint of heart. It is not taught in most of our schools or recounted as part of our national narrative. It does not serve our purposes well. John Hope Franklin was a young boy growing up in Tulsa at the time. Born in 1915, Franklin endured the strict segregation laws and practices of Jim Crow racism and confronted America's ardent past through the shifting contexts of World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, and the struggle for civil rights. A magnificent scholar dedicated to democratic freedoms, he was content to be the researcher behind the scenes whose unprecedented work on the legislative history of the 14th Amendment, and if we have forgotten what the 14th Amendment is, it simply means equal protection of the laws. He did this work for the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, leading to the landmark Supreme Court decision Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. The title of John Hope Franklin's autobiography is Mirror to America. He died several years ago. 
But the title of his autobiography is also the title of my message and my tribute to this pioneering scholar, activist, humanitarian, and friend. The Tulsa Race Massacre is American history. It is part of a long and painful legacy of anti-black sentiment and actions that date back to our nation's beginnings. The early 20th century had already given rise to anti-black riots in Atlanta, Springfield, Illinois, East St. Louis, Illinois, and other cities north and south. The years 1919 to 1924 saw the post-World War intensification of the lynchings of blacks, vigilantism, and mob violence. If you never knew about the origins of the picnic, you will be surprised. Look it up and find out about the correlation between lynchings and picnics. In 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma's Greenwood District was called Black Wall Street in Little Africa, home to 10,000 African Americans, hundreds of flourishing businesses, and dreamers of the American dream. This community would not be exempt from the racist slaughter. As telling, perhaps even more telling than their deaths, was the deafening national silence that followed in the wake of the destruction of this entire community and the desecration and death of black life. Our country worked swiftly and successfully to expunge from the national record and consciousness the scourge of America's racial hypocrisy and sadly the story of we the people and for that matter the story of the church as one body continues to be full of historic truths untold. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. And absent a national reckoning with America's original sin called racism, there can be no peace. Except America looks in the mirror and atones. Justice and reconciliation cannot come. Martin Luther King Jr. called racism a virus, a contagion, a pathology in our land that long preceded the current coronavirus. America's current social circumstances, but a continuum of irrefutable occurrences, our country has wanted very much to conceal and cannot. All manner of fear, invective, and inequality codified in legislation, custom, and law have worked overtime. We find kindred spirit in a host of divides that affect our nation from sexism, misogyny, and homophobia to anti-immigrationism and the, the very desecration of Gaia Earth itself. Often, our faith communities 
have been complicit. The courage, the decision, the will is ours to change the trajectory of our nation and engender solidarity by recognizing our common humanity, born of aspirations yet unknown. Down through the centuries, in the post-Reconstruction and early segregationist years, I hear the voice of my Shiro, the fearless journalist and women's rights and black activist Ida B. Wells Barnett, traveling the country by train, documenting and reporting crimes against humanity, the lynchings of African-American children, women, and men in every quarter of the United States by the hundreds and thousands, year in, year out. You know something about that at the museum in Montgomery. Speaking before an audience in Chicago, Ida B. Wells said, and I quote, it is not the creature of an hour, the sudden outburst of uncontrolled fury, or the unspeakable brutality of an insane mob. It represents the cool, calculating deliberation of intelligent people who openly avow that there is no unwritten law that justifies them in putting human beings to death without complaint under oath, without trial by jury, without opportunity to make defense, and without right of appeal. A litany of racial oppression and criminalizing contempt for black bodies counters the myth of America's triumphalist past. The 1862 riots in New York City, Atlanta's infamous day of death in 1906, the volatile red summer of hate of 1919, and the reason why it was called the red summer of hate was because so many black people were killed, blood was running in the streets to the degree that it was said to be the red summer. And Tulsa, we remember. The decades-long U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee, the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church, and the killing of four little girls right here in Birmingham. Uprisings in Watts, Detroit, and Newark, and mass unrest everywhere in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King. We remember. I remember. It was just like yesterday to me. The bitter aftermaths of Emmett Till, Fred Hampton, Hurricane Katrina, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, Tamar Rice, the Charleston Nine, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. We remember. Through seasons of death and grief, black America has continued to find hope where hope should not exist. Nor has this nation's forms of terrorism and racial ethnic cleansing been used against Americans of African descent alone. Native peoples across the land, forced by gunpoint from their ancestral homelands, traveled the devastating trail of tears. Anti-Catholic terrorism, anti-Polish bigotry, anti-Italian sentiment, anti-Semitic activities, Japanese internment camps, the police raid of the Stonewall Inn, 
transphobia, Islamophobia, anti-immigrationism, and anti-Asian violence. And today's mass and daily shootings are permutations on a theme of our ungodly and unbecoming separation one from another. The nation has seen systemic violence in its most virulent and prejudicial forms for so long, we have become callous to it all. There is good news beyond lament. Thank God. We have made significant strides as a people and as a nation. We are not who we once were. We have in some ways become better. We are not yet who we want to be. We still have miles to go before we sleep. In the book of Exodus, we find the familiar story of God appearing to Moses on Mount Horeb in a bush that is aflame with fire yet not consumed. The usual focus of this story is God's instructions to Moses to remove his sandals when standing on holy ground and most dramatic of all, the disclosure of the divine's name, I am. Easily overlooked amidst this exciting treasure trove of insights for preaching, teaching, and reflection, however, is the geopolitical occasion for this sacred encounter. What has happened? Israel has been subjected to centuries of enslavement and violent oppression. Now the state has issued orders for the young male children to be drowned in the Nile River. As a group, the Israelites are the targets of profiling and genocide. As a community, they cry out angrily, fiercely, and intently to their God. In anguish, people and prophets say in the book of the record, How long, O Lord, how long? Fearsome has been the past, bitter the aftermath, tragic the human waste in this savage season. In response to the terror and abuse now stalking the people, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, a bush ablaze with divine indignation, a bush aflame with the power of justice. And God calls Moses to liberate the Hebrews from their oppression. God calls Moses to struggle. There is an old expression our people have need of us. I would say to you independent, I would say to us church, now more than ever, the world needs our voice, our witness as people of faith to act with God, to transform the world, to fill up those bags with sweet potatoes and to fill up for harvest for hunger, to take care of those who are not only bereaved and demeaned and left behind, but to also be sure that we take care of the nurture of our own souls. God has called us to be in the world transforming, 
to be the good news we seek, to proclaim release to the incarcerated, and the recovery of sight to those unable to see, to set the oppressed in society free, to proclaim the acceptable year of our God. The acceptable year, the good book says, is now. We are called to love and to lead, to resist and to reform, to disrupt the status quo and to model possibilities for human community that recognizes our humanity in common and renews life. As believers, we can dare to dream God's dream for a more just and beautiful world. It is my conviction that the Kairos moment is here. There's so much bad news everywhere you look, everywhere you listen, everywhere you turn. But if you are looking through the lens of God, then you hear and see and feel and experience that this present moment is a gift. The inclusive call from God to us to be a whosoever church and world. That no person, no individuals, no groups will be left on the side of the road that we will care for each and every one of us. We protest. We are afraid of each other. We don't want to get too close to those who are unfamiliar to us. And the more we protest, the more God would indeed remind us that we belong to each other. Beloved community is happening, David, whether we are ready or not. Beloved community is coming. And in political terms, you might even say that a more perfect union is possible too. God's movement is waiting for us. I have long heard the voice of God in the cries of my people, the spirit of my communities of origin, the spirit of the ancestors and the elders, the children and the youth and everyone. Through the hatred and fear of our society, I have heard my people speaking, marching, voting, policy making, vaccinating, filled with the power of the universe, driven by the divine imperative, standing on the right side of history, declaring that love will always have the last word. Independent, I am so very glad for your faith witness on this day. I want you to look inward and to look around you and to recognize that we are what love can look like. We can be the action to our prayers. We can be the answer to our communities and world. We can be the vessels for justice and peace, the magnificent movement for sacred change that has only just begun. I am convicted about these things, particularly because our young people are watching us. They look at the church so often and they see that we are scarcely any different than the world around us. They want to know that we believe what we say. 
and that we practice what we preach. More often than not, my experience has become that young people are leading us more than we are leading them. And the challenges we face are many. Sexual harassment and sexual assault, income inequality, health disparities, food deserts, unsafe drinking water, lack of shelter, the earth cries aloud. As Christians, we must relearn, reimagine, and rebuild our world. For there is so much work to do, and we must do it together. God is for us, and Emmanuel is with us. My siblings, we have more power than we know to companion along the way, to be champions of this way, where love prevails in a world that is in dire need. God longs for us to dream God's dream.